This week marks the 33rd anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. For me, memories are vivid, particularly of Dan Rather's grim reporting and an animation of a radioactive cloud slithering across Europe. Eventually, radioactive particles from that one column of nuclear smoke would be found in every country in the Northern Hemisphere. Most of us know the story to a greater or lesser extent. A new Chernobyl miniseries is coming to HBO in May that promises to, if not offer new information, at least bring new life to the story of the tragedy. With these things in mind, I thought I might take the time to look back on a relatively new, award-winning documentary with Chernobyl at its heart and all of the bigger issues the story raises. The film won the World Cinema Documentary Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, but it flew under my radar when it was first released in the United States in 2015. The film is The Russian Woodpecker, and you are listening to The Cold War Vault. That is the Russian woodpecker. From 1976 to 1989, that signal interfered with global communications, truly irritating amateur radio enthusiasts especially who started a hunting club to try and jam it. The signal was a 10 hertz pulse and originated from a massive antenna array near Chernobyl. The signal was part of the Duga radar system, it was an over-the-horizon, early-warning radar system designed to bounce radar signals off of the ionosphere and detect missile launches inbound for Soviet territory. It was a response to an imbalance in the early-warning capabilities between the United States and the Soviet Union, in which the U.S. could place radar installations right up to the Soviet frontiers so that the Soviet Union was surrounded. While the U.S. had 25 to 30 minutes of tactical warning, the Soviet Union only had 10. I would very much like to explore this concept in a future series. The distant early warning line, the dew line, the pine tree line, the duga, and even the dead hand radar that almost started World War III because of a flock of seagulls. And that's one of the great things about this film. Though its central thesis may be controversial, or as most viewers would characterize it, completely insane, it has so many jumping-off points for more historical exploration into politics, science and engineering, international relations, and really a lot more. It really makes you think, especially if you come to it with a little prior knowledge, as I know most of you have. It won't necessarily make you seriously consider its central conspiracy theory, but it does make you think. The film follows a Ukrainian visual and performance artist named Fedor Alexandrovich. Fedor is on a quest to uncover a massive conspiracy and explain the whys of his own childhood trauma. 
The conspiracy is that the Chernobyl reactor disaster was intentionally engineered by a Soviet scientist-turned-bureaucrat to distract from the failure of the Duga radar array and his squandering of seven billion rubles. Fedor is a child of the disaster. When the radioactive cloud from the Chernobyl reactor began to spread, it covered the city of Kiev, and the Ukrainian authorities decided to evacuate 100,000 children. Fedor was one of them. He was sent to an orphanage for safekeeping during the worst days of radioactivity. So he has a personal interest in finding out why the disaster happened, and a real passion for uncovering some kind of rationality and sense behind what would otherwise seem so senseless. As he says in the film, every tragedy must have a reason. There are no coincidences. Because of this, it's easy to forgive him for putting forward what amounts to a completely unhinged conspiracy theory. But it isn't at all clear that the Russian woodpecker is really about Fedor's theory and his search for truth. His travels and investigations are interwoven with the 2013 to 2014 political unrest in Ukraine, and specifically in Kiev during the Euromaidan demonstrations in the winter between those years. While the film pokes around in the Soviet past, strolling through various corpses of the Cold War, it is very much a story about Russia's ascension, the rise of a new Soviet-like state, and the emergence of a new Cold War. There is a disclaimer at the beginning of the film. It reads, The authors of this film in no way intend to injure relations between Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Later in the film, it's suggested, it's actually stated outright by a very frightened Fedor, that the disclaimer was one of the demands of the secret police after a visit by a secret police colonel. In subsequent interviews, the filmmakers explain that another demand was that the secret police have final cut, that is, to censor it before release. But the collapse of the Ukrainian government in the spring of 2014 negated that demand. I want to place a disclaimer here as well, that I'm not discussing this film because I believe that Fedor's conspiracy has any merit. On the other hand, I won't spend any time debunking his theory either, and here's why. The conspiracy theory put forward in the film is really just a wrapper. It's a way to access the deep political and social tensions between Russia and Ukraine and provide a symbol for a new and brewing global conflict. Completely apart from Theodore's theory, the film shows how the legacy of the Soviet Union lingers, like radiation on the land and in the bodies and minds of everyone it touched. Fedor Alexandrovich is an interesting character. As I said before, he's an artist and performer, a painter and a playwright. He's described variously as being a genius, an idiot, someone who doesn't brush his teeth, and all of the above at the same time. 
He's also scarred by the events of April 1986. Emotionally, he's stayed angry about the accident, and he's traumatized by his own evacuation in the wake of Chernobyl. Physically, he has health problems, which are attributed to the radioactive strontium in his bones. His wild eyes might be the result of his failing eyesight, or the fanatical energy he exudes on his search for answers. During the course of the film, Fedor interviews experts and ex-military men. He tours sites and presents his theories. He presents himself nude with a torch on a raft and eventually scales the nearly 500-foot-high Duga radar array. I mention these antics not to belittle the film or Fedor Alexandrovich himself, but just to point out that he is given free reign to be a madman, a sort of wild-eyed prophet speaking truth to power, or at least what he perceives to be the truth. And that's where the greatest strength of this film lies. That's where it holds the interest of even those not so enamored of the conspiracy. Because while Fedor is wrapped in a plastic drop cloth, walking barefoot over that iconic schoolroom full of gas masks in abandoned Pripyat, the film is exploring something apparent to those who take the time to look. And that is that the Soviet Union, in so many ways, has come back from the dead. Fedor says... None of us believed the Soviet system could return. It's a ghoul, a creature we didn't beat to death. As the investigation into Chernobyl and the Dugas radar system unfolds, we come back to the central square in Kiev and the massive protests there. The Euromaidan protests had been sparked in late 2013 by a decision on the part of the Ukrainian government to suspend the acceptance of an economic agreement with Europe in favor of joining the Eurasian Economic Union. That seems simple enough, but you know better than that. So let me rephrase that through a slightly more cynical Realpolitik translator. The European Union and Ukraine negotiated a trade agreement called an association agreement that the government of Ukraine and the people thoroughly backed. The only hitch was that Ukraine had to address some fairly horrible human rights and corruption violations, largely swirling around Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. To the surprise of Russia, which had been waiting for the fractious parliament to fail to address the issues and to watch the deal fall through, the Verkhovna Rada, which is the name for the Ukrainian parliament, rallied around the new reforms. All except the Communist Party of Ukraine, suspiciously. Russia wanted Ukraine and the Eurasian Economic Union, its own trading bloc with a rising Russia at its center, so it blocked all imports of Ukrainian goods, unilaterally bashing the economy into submission and threatening a trade war. Though negotiations continued to try and make the European agreement work, terms for the loans offered by the International Monetary Fund to combat the growing Ukrainian economic crisis were just not acceptable. So by late 2013, Ukraine dropped its efforts to sign the association agreement and protests erupted. Famously in Independence Square in Kiev, 
known as Maidan Nezeleznosti. Nearly three weeks later, when the economic crisis was worsening and threatened a total destabilization, the European West and the Russian East each bid for Ukraine's economic loyalty, or servitude, really. The European Union offered 610 million euros in loans. That was 838 million US dollars at the time. Russia offered 15 billion US dollars with 5 billion up front and lower natural gas prices, which was something especially necessary to Ukraine's economic health and security. The deal was sealed with a great big bear hug. That is the modern face of the Russian woodpecker. The symbol of imperial fingers spreading out from the center. It is the story of Russian interference and Russian domination as it shows itself in the film's Euromaidan sequences. As the film reminds us, Ukraine has been a battleground between East and West for centuries. So let's return to our mad monk hero. Fedor Alexandrovich believes that the Chernobyl reactor explosion was engineered by Vasily Shamshin, the original director of the Duga radar project and eventual head of the Ministry of Communications of the Soviet Union. His thesis is that the radar array never worked. It was thwarted by the Aurora Borealis, and to cover up this failure, Shamshin engineered the Chernobyl disaster through a telephone call to execute the dangerous test that did, in fact, lead to the explosion. Georgi Kapchinsky, billed as the last Soviet head of atomic energy, is accused of making this fateful call. The head of the Chernobyl investigation, Vladimir Komarov, claims to have seen the transcripts, or even heard the call, of the conversation that night between Kopchinsky and the Chernobyl control room, encouraging them to carry out the test. When confronted with this, Kopchinsky claims to have been in bed and that no such call was made. The call was supposedly made at the behest of Shamshin, who was a high-ranking official in Moscow in 1986. When pushed on whether the telephone call was ordered by Shamshin, Kopchinsky says, there was no such man, denying the very existence of Vasily Shamshin. The chief guard of the Chernobyl zone, Alexander Naumov, tells Fedor that, quote, Many people still have a Soviet mentality. They swore an oath. They signed their names. In comes a foreign journalist and they clam up. They start acting according to their former orders. There was no such man. The Soviet system still lives in that denial. That blind adherence to secrecy to the point of altering objective reality that creates such a cognitive dissonance that it's nearly frightening to watch. I know Vasily Alexandrovich Shamshin was a real person. The film includes photographs, and he was, in fact, a Soviet official who existed and continues to exist in search results that any of us can find in a fraction of a second. But when confronted with a simple question, 
Was a telephone call made? Yes, no, or unknown? Kopchinsky opts for the safest option of all. Make the man, and therefore the question, disappear. In secrecy, that's where conspiracies live, in the dark. It's natural, I think, for the human mind to fill in the blanks in the middle of the night, in a dark forest or a dark room. Little sounds become monsters. Waiting for doctor's lab test results, we're all terminal. And behind all of those black lines upon black lines of redacted text in all of those billions of government documents through the years, or even redactions in the government report du jour, just about anything can live and grow and fester. But what happens when the darkness is so total, as it so often was during the years of the Soviet Empire, that whole people disappear? And I don't just mean to the gulag, and not just in a touched-up photo here and there, but in the minds of men who knew them and worked for them, and then somehow convinced themselves that those people had never existed at all. Shamshin. There was no such man. Fedor interviews a former Soviet weapons designer, Vadim Prokofiev. This would have been an extraordinarily prestigious career in the old USSR. Secretive, but prestigious. When asked if the woodpecker signal originated from the Duga radar array, Prokofiev denies it. But it did. Prokofiev says that it's impossible because the Duga never actually worked. But it did. Fedor asks Prokofiev whether the Duga array had anything to do with the Chernobyl disaster. Prokofiev says, that's another question, let me tell you about Stalin instead and then goes into a lengthy description of Stalin's youth and how he couldn't have been as murderous as people claim because he was a religious man. This, what I would call a whiplash-inducing non-sequitur, would have been a life-saving mechanism in a world of Soviet secrecy. The chief of maintenance on the Duga, Leonid Petrov, also maintains his Soviet firewall, when the filmmakers, and this time it's the director, Chad Gracia, an American, when he asks what Petrov can tell him about the antenna, Petrov responds cheekily, I think, steel, tall, it hummed in the wind. In other words, nothing. The Ukrainian cameraman returns with a hidden camera and a bottle of liquor. He says, thank you, you gave us valuable information. And Petrov replies, I tried my best not to give you any valuable information. As a fellow Ukrainian citizen, Petrov opens up about his distrust of Americans, especially in military matters. They swore an oath. They signed their names. So what about the records? Fedor and the filmmakers pursue a few hard facts surrounding the theory. I would dare say very few. A professional Chernobyl historian is also featured in the film. 
This historian speaks of the destruction of the archives relating to the accident. Just an extraordinary act of historical vandalism. But there, too, without certain records, without the record of this essential phone call, it could just as well have happened as not. About the lack of that hard evidence, Fedor says, we'll never find evidence that could stand in a Nuremberg trial, because after the Nuremberg trials, intelligent politicians stopped leaving that sort of evidence behind. Very, very convenient for a wild conspiracy theory, but in so many cases, also absolutely true. Let's go back to the deteriorating situation in Kiev. During the Euromaidan protests, Fedor says that the Soviet Union wants revenge. He doesn't mean this accidentally. He doesn't mean that Russia wants revenge. He means that the ghost of the Soviet Union wants revenge. No, it's not the ghost. That is too passive and it's too past. He means the spirit, the living spirit of the Soviet Union. Revenge for what? And why does Russia want Ukraine anyway? Revenge may be for all of those peripheral imperial possessions that abandoned the center as the Soviet Union fell to pieces in 1991. But Ukraine especially, because there are deep historical and cultural ties that from Russia's point of view, place Ukraine absolutely in its sphere of influence. It's a power dynamic that seems perennially intertwined and at odds. This comes from certain historical forces that you could spend a lifetime studying. Prior to the Russian Revolution, Ukraine was referred to as Little Russia and segments of society developed a little Russian identity that was separate from a Ukrainian identity and tied them to the larger Russia. Even though the term is diminutive and seen today as somewhat insulting, it continues to be used among Russian nationalists. Today, 30% of the population still speaks Russian as their primary language. As much as Russia wants Ukraine to come back to the fold, Ukraine remembers the abuse suffered under the Soviet system. Between 1932 and 1933, millions of Ukrainians died of starvation due to Soviet policies, and specifically the policies of Joseph Stalin. The famine is known as Holodomor, to kill by starvation. It is sometimes referred to as the Ukrainian genocide and it left a profound scar on the cultural memory of the country, especially with regard to relations with the Soviet Union or its Russian successor. The abuse of the Ukrainian people by its government was on display again in Kiev during the early part of 2014, when more aggressive crackdowns on the protesters began to take place. Troops were sent in to clear the square, which only made things worse. By the 18th of February, the protest had swelled to revolution, and violent clashes with troops and riot police erupted in the streets of Kiev. With the fighting at its peak, 
President Viktor Yanukovych and the leaders of the opposition signed an agreement to end the conflict. Immediately following this, Yanukovych and top government officials escaped to the airport and were extracted by Russia. The protesters, now revolutionaries, took control of the president's private estate and the administrative apparatus of Ukraine. In the end, more than 100 people were killed and 2,500 injured in the fighting. The Russian Woodpecker is a film about one man's theory. It is a theory that tries to make sense of the senseless and tries to give some shape to a disaster so massive it arguably helped to rupture the Soviet Empire. And yet, it's so personal that Fedor carries it with him every day in his bones. It is a film about the rising Soviet ghoul, as Fedor calls it, in the guise of an ascendant Russia. It is a warning to see this force for what it is as it moves out from the center and tries its luck at the periphery, resting back its old dominions, gaining its strength and momentum. Fyodor has a warning for us all, I think. He says, Ukraine is full of ghosts, ghosts of the past that are trying to return to life. And there is a ghost at Chernobyl whose scream was heard around the world. I want to hunt down these ghosts and silence them forever because they want to return to life or drag us to their world, the world of the dead. He goes on to say, Ukraine is just the first step in the rebirth of the Soviet Union. The second step is World War III. An addendum. One week after the success of the protests, Russia invaded the Crimean Peninsula with masked, unidentified special forces. The territory had been part of the sovereign state of Ukraine, but from March 18, 2014, Crimea became the newest part of the Russian Federation. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. You can find The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Stop by coldwarvault.com to see images and show notes I post for each episode. And if you want to contact me with ideas for shows, questions, or comments, you can do it there. Though Facebook is just as easy probably. Liking and subscribing on iTunes is the best way to support The Vault. It really does help. Until next time, be careful out there, and I will be safe down here. <laughs>